Good evening. We're going to be uh, starting. Thank you, Scott. So welcome. Uh, my name is Peter Hine. I'm the president of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York. Uh, I'm delighted to see you all here tonight at our Talmage Day meeting. Frederick Samuel Talmage was a founding member and the second president of our society. It was his generous bequest following his death in 1904 that provided the funds to our society that were used to restore and purchase Bronson's Tavern over a hundred years ago in the early 1900s. And that is why we commemorate Frederick Samuel Talmage's birthday each year around the date of his birthday, which was January 24, 1824, with our annual Talmage Day stated meeting. We will start with the invocation from our society's chaplain, Father Christopher Cullen. Father Cullen? Thank you, Peter. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, all provident Father, may our words and gathering tonight keep hallowing the great deeds of our ancestors. And as we gather to hear about the archeology span of this great city, render us ever mindful that our achievements are the crowning of thy gifts. We are grateful for the life and service of Frederick Samuel Talmage, and we commend him to your mercy and all the deceased sons of the revolution. Fill us with a spirit of gratitude as we contemplate the work of thy providence in the life of this country. Bless our conversation tonight, that we may be filled with love of this republic under God and be ever mindful of thy gifts. We ask all this in thy holy name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Father Cullen. And now I'd like to ask our society's third vice president, Justin Tessier, to lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. Justin? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York was instituted in 1876 by grandchildren of those who by military or civil service achieved American independence during the Revolutionary War. And we seek to perpetuate the memory of those patriots. Uh, just a brief word on upcoming events. On February 18th and 19th, our museum will host its annual George Washington birthday open house here in the museum on Saturday and Sunday from noon to 5 p.m. Then on Friday, February 24th, we do our annual George Washington birthday ball. It's a terrific event. We'll be at the Metropolitan Club again this year. The purpose of the ball is to honor George Washington 
and raise funds for Francis Tavern. So the tickets are available for sale on the Francis Tavern Museum website. And uh, please uh, go to the website and purchase your tickets if you have not already done so. Then that Saturday, February 25th, we will be hosting a special tour at 2 p.m. of the museum for fall participants. On Sunday, February 26th, our society will hold its annual church service at the Church of the Incarnation, where we commemorate the birthday of George Washington and remember of member, members of our society who passed away during the prior year. And additional information on our church service will also be uh, on our website. I'd like to recognize at this time uh, members of our executive committee who are here. Owen Cloder, he may have stepped out, but he may still be here, as well as our treasurer, Alan Borst. Uh, Alan, are you here? Great. And then our second vice president, Ken Chase, and our third vice president, who you just met, Justin Tessier. Justin, our registrar, Scott Jeffrey. Uh, our chaplain, who you just met, Christopher Cullen, and then board members, Michael Conies, who is also our Nathan Hale Day chairman, Todd Holder, and Tom Lofton are here. So welcome to you all. Then past presidents, uh, Bob McKay, who uh, uh, continues to play an active role on several of our committees and has shown great leadership in his generosity. Uh, to the society, including as the lead donor to our 250th anniversary campaign. Bob, thank you for being here. Also, Ambrose Richardson, uh, my predecessor as uh, president, I think Ambrose needed to uh, step out, so I don't see him, but uh, he's been a terrific uh, support uh, for our institution as well. Then members of our Long Room Association Planned Giving Society, uh, Bob McKay, who I just introduced, uh, also Ken Chase uh, are here as well. And the Long Room Planned Giving Society was established to recognize individuals who have documented a bequest or other planned gift to the society with an estimated value of 100,000 or more. If anyone's interested, I'd be happy to uh, provide more information. We're also delighted to have friends from other societies here. Uh, Kimberly Howard Thomason, who is the regent of the Fort Greene chapter of the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution. Kim, welcome. Melinda Allison, uh, vice regent of the Fort Greene chapter. National Society of Daughters of the American Revolution. Tonight's guest speaker, Elisa Laurier, Registrar and Historian of the Fort Greene Chapter of the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution, and her husband, uh, Christopher Riccardi. Uh, so welcome to both of you. Thank you for being here. I believe I saw Margaret Gavey, who is the recording secretary. Margaret, welcome. Glad that you're joining us. And also, uh, Renee Witterstatter, who is in the background, is a member of our Museum and Art Committee 
and also the curator of this wonderful exhibit in the Messick Gallery that uh, all of you saw while you were enjoying your refreshments. If you have any questions about our special exhibit, uh, the Cloak Crusader, uh, Renee is the person to go to. So Renee, if you could just uh, stand so they, they know who to take their questions to. Thank you for being here today. My apologies if I've omitted anyone else, uh, but uh, I'd like to conclude by recognizing Scott Dwyer, who is our executive director, who has been just indispensable to uh, uh, the running of the society and our Francis Chapman Museum, as well as Shelby Carr, who you may have seen earlier this evening, who is uh, our membership manager and has been doing a great job on that in, in many other ways. So, as I said at the outset, uh, we're here tonight to commemorate the birthday of Frederick Samuel Talmage, grandson of Benjamin Talmage, who was Washington's spymaster, as you may know. And Sam, Frederick Samuel was one of 13 founders and incorporators of our society. He was elected as the second president of Sons of the Revolution in the years following the society's founding. For a number of years, uh, beginning with the late 1980s, Sons of the Revolution had attempted to acquire Bronx's Tavern, and that became possible in 1904 when the owners of the property finally agreed to sell. Frederick Talmage's last official act as president of the society was to affix his signature on the contract for the purchase of Francis Tavern. And it was, as I mentioned, because of his very generous bequest of property and funds uh, that our society was able to finance both the purchase and the restoration of this historic uh, building. Uh, so uh, we owe a great deal of gratitude to him. On December 4, 1907, the anniversary of Washington's farewells to his officers in our long room, Francis Tavern was opened as a museum, restaurant, and the headquarters for our society. So I'd like everyone to raise a virtual toast or real toast if you have uh, something in this room uh, to the memory of Frederick Samuel Talmage. So it's now my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Melissa Laurier, who will speak on the subject of revolutionary New York and archeologists' archeological perspective. Melissa is the founder and president of Priscilla's Archeological Consultants, a culture resource management company in New York City that researches, evacuates, and analyzes sites to assess their historical or archaeological impact. Since opening in 2001, uh, her company has worked on hundreds of projects, including some which uncovered artifacts related to the Revolutionary War. She received a PhD in 2018 from the CUNY Graduate Center. And as I mentioned earlier, she is also the registrar and historian of the Fort Greene chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. So Lisa, thank you so much for being here this evening. And just one 
Uh, technical note, uh, as is always the case, our standard disclaimer, the views of our speaker are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Sons of Revolution or at Bronx's Tavern Museum. So, Lisa, welcome. Trying to get organized here. Uh, Good evening. Thank you, everyone, for uh, coming out. I can't even say on a winter's evening because we're not really having winter in New York this year, it seems. Um, and for those of you who are tuning in at home, um, first, before we start, I just want to say, you know, thank you to the Sons of the Revolution for the invitation to speak um, with a bit of prodding from, from our vice regent, Melinda Allison, uh, who was like, yeah, you should talk. Um, but thank you, Peter and Bob, for inviting me and all the sons. Um, and a little shout out to Scott, Scott Dwyer for um, helping with all the technology and the coordination that has gone into this evening. Um, so I'm not going to talk all about all of archaeology in New York City, because that is a very large and very loaded topic. Um, but we're going to talk briefly about uh, a little bit about the revolution or my perspective as an archaeologist about the Revolutionary War in New York City. And when most people think of New York City, they very rarely think about archaeology or the revolution. Um, they usually think when you say archaeology, ancient lands, far off places, but certainly not a forest of skyscrapers, steel and concrete, which is how we really think of New York City. And quite honestly, it's pretty hard to imagine that this small little trading post would one day become the world-class city that we know today. A little bit about archeology span being done in New York City. In New York City, archeological work is often predicated on construction work. If municipal monies are used, projects must consider their impact to potential historic or cultural resources. And should such resources be exposed, disturbed, and unfortunately, if necessary, destroyed during construction, they will be first documented. Ultimately, as archaeologists, we often find ourselves trailing construction workers. Um, archaeology and history, unfortunately, rarely does not rarely comes first in New York City. Archaeology and history are indelibly intertwined. There's quite a lot of both throughout the city. And historical context is critical to our understanding of even the small bits of archeology. span For example, what is there to say about this button without context? A little context. Many know of the Battle of Long Island. Uh, the New York City was occupied territory, but surely there's more to the story. Where are the sites? Who were the people? And here is where context comes in, to a place that, like most of archaeology, is inhabited by those of little note, the everyday people. So let's go back to the beginning. But wrong beginning, not July 4th, 1776, but November 1765, when tradesmen and mechanics rallied on New York City's common to protest the Stamp Act. This was followed by frequent mass meetings and demonstrations, where those associated with the new law were often burnt in effigy. During this period, the Sons of Liberty emerged as a revolutionary force using the common as their staging ground and where they erected the Liberty Pole. Blood would be spilled on August 11, 1766, when a group of British soldiers cut down the Liberty Pole. 
The next day, an estimated two to 3,000 New Yorkers rallied at the common, hurling bricks and stones at the troops who charged at them with bayonets, perhaps one like this, which was found beneath City Hall Park in 2010. But can we dim the lights a little? It might be easier to see. Um, okay, so that is, this was quite a hit when it was found in City Hall Park. Um, everybody came out, all politicians. Over a four-year period, the Sons of Liberty erected Liberty Poles on the common that British troops continually cut down or destroyed. Then on January 19, 1770, the Battle of Golden Hill occurred, six weeks before the Boston Massacre. If you walk south along Pearl Street today between Fulton and Cliff Street, you can look west and you will still see remnants of Golden Hill. It's through a parking lot. It's been cut down, but it's still there. Afterwards, the Sons of Liberty requested permission to erect a fifth Liberty Pole on the common, a monument of freedom in the most public place. The council rejected this request, prompting Isaac Sears, a leader of the Sons of Liberty and a South Street Seaport resident, to purchase part of a small private lot on the common. And it is here that the Sons of Liberty erected the final Liberty Pole. History happens within a landscape, both physical and cultural. Increasing numbers of British soldiers were being stationed in New York City as early as 1774. And to the dismay of many, residents were required to house officers and soldiers in their homes. In response, the city council constructed barracks on the common. All of this in the lead up to the Battle of Long Island. It's an engagement that rarely gets discussed, probably because the Americans lost, or most of the sites have been lost to urban development. However, the tactical and strategic importance of the battle is unquestionably overlooked. The Battle of Long Island was the first major battle to occur after the United States declared independence. It was a turning point that united the colonies. So July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence is signed, but word did not reach New York City until the 6th of July. On July 9th at 1800 hours, General Washington had several brigades assemble on the common to hear the declaration read aloud. In the following days, American lookouts watched the British fleet massing in the Narrows from a point that is today part of Fort Hamilton Army Base. Over 230,000 over 200 ships and 30,000 men were set to invade Long Island. Their objective seize the city of New York as first step toward restoration of British authority in America. The troops that came ashore on August 22nd established camps stretching east to Flatlands, one of the six independent towns that formed present day Brooklyn. At the time, the area was rural in nature an area of farms, dense forests, oyster ponds, and tidewater marshes. The Redcoats and Hessians marched along the King's Highway, seizing the villages of Gravesend and Flatlands and taking the old road north to capture Flatbush. According to local oral history, often recounted in 19th century newspapers, the British forced Garrison's mill into service for the Royal Army. In the lead up to the British landing, Garrison was said to have supplied the Americans and then hid the millstones in the marsh. Later, the British forced Garrison at point of bayonet to reveal where they were hidden. 
remnants of the 17th century mill are still visible today at low tide. Some of the British troops established camp on the property of Johannes Lott. His house still stands today as a quiet reminder of rural Kings County. Johannes Lott was a colonel in the American army, but records show that his son, also Johannes, was a loyalist. Leading up to and after the revolution, the son, Johannes, lived in new lots, but his sons and wife, Janetti, lived on the farm in flatlands, quite a distance back in the day. It is documented that Janetti advanced funds to support American prisoners of war, and family history claims that she sank all the pewter in the nearby creek so the British could not confiscate it for use. Janetti is a recognized patriot of the DAR. Tents and equipment for 20,000 covered the farm fields throughout Gravesend and Flatlands. The lot boys are said to have raided the British encampment, making off with this cast iron fireback that remains in the lot family to this day. Nearby, the Wyckoff farmhouse built in 1766 by Hendrik Wyckoff still stands. Unfortunately, maybe not for much longer. The house lay along the King's Highway, the, country's main, the county's main east-west artery. Sometime after the British invasion, Hessian soldiers were quartered here. Two of them left their mark, etching their names on the window panes. Mm. Many years later, Gertrude Ryder Bennett would research both men and eventually trace the life of M. Bach. She documented this in her book, The Hessian Lieutenant Left His Name. Until recently, the house contained several revolutionary era relics. This document, um, as well as, which I will show later, a revolutionary war sword, one of several. Many of us know how that week in 1776 played out. Washington was misinformed about the number of British troops. The Americans established their stronghold at Fort Putnam at Brooklyn Heights. General John Sullivan and Lord Sterling commanded troops along the most direct routes to Brooklyn Heights, while the British marched most of their troops through the lesser known Jamaica Pass that went through the wooded heights running down the spine of Brooklyn, approximately present day Eastern Parkway. Loyalists had informed the British of Jamaica Pass, which was considered too far east to be a liability and was guarded by few American troops. The British took this route to encircle the Americans. At daybreak on the 27th, Washington's young army faced an attack by over 20,000 well-armed and experienced British and Hessian troops. The Americans were attacked by the Hessians from the front with the main British column coming at them from the rear. The Americans were routed and fled back toward Brooklyn Heights. In and around Battle Hill, the highest natural point in Kings County, today Greenwood Cemetery, the outnumbered Americans put up a stiff resistance. They were pushed back up the Gowanus Road toward the old stone house. During the battle, approximately 2,000 combined British forces captured the house and began to shell American troops retreating across the creek. To cover the retreat, soldiers from Maryland and De Delaware, led by Lord Sterling, boldly counterattacked. Nearby in the swamps of the Gowanus, the Maryland 400, led by Colonel Smallwood, held off a British force many times their number. The objective, cover the American retreat across Gowanus Creek. The Marylanders held the British at bay until the afternoon of the 27th. They sacrificed themselves so the remainder of the American troops could flee to safety. 
At battle's end, Lord Sterling had been captured and well over half his men lay dead or taken prisoner. However, the heroism of the Maryland 400 enabled many of their fellow soldiers to reach safety. Over 200 of the regiment were killed. Their bodies left for days in the August heat as an example to the Americans. Eventually, the British allowed local residents to bury them in an unmarked grave on land donated by Adrian Van Brunt. The location of this grave has been the source of great speculation for probably well over a century. And research recently um, due to the historic districting of the Gowanus has been able to narrow down the area where that burial may have been um, to essentially a one or two block radius. However, if the Marylanders are there, they would be lying beneath 15 to 18 feet of landfill as the area is so heavily developed. Badly outnumbered and cornered by British troops, the Americans were on the brink of annihilation. Faced with defeat, Washington and his troops retreated from Brooklyn. At sundown on the 29th, Washington quietly moved remnants of his army to the Brooklyn Ferry Landing. Throughout the night, covered by thick fog, a regiment of fishermen from Salem and Marblehead, Massachusetts, carried the men across the East River to New York in rowboats, barges, sloops, and canoes. By all rights, the revolution should have been over that day. But by a combination of luck, leadership, the bravery of a few, cooperation from Mother Nature, Washington was able to escape with his army battered, but nearly intact. The Patriots lived to fight another day. Though an undeniable upset for the Americans, it galvanized a sense of patriotism, providing both the army and civilian population with the resolve to continue the struggle for independence. Instead of ending on the hills and fields of Brooklyn, the defeat served as a rallying cry that brought the independent state militias together under one banner as Americans. The battle we know left the majority of present day New York City as occupied territory, setting the stage for the remainder of the war. And it is archeology span that enables us to tell a little bit about what life was like in occupied New York and beyond. Two sites I've had the very good fortune of working on are City Hall Park and South Street Seaport, neighboring areas historically. It was at the seaport that these buttons were found. These are British regimental buttons that were found within Fulton Street itself in the vicinity of the original shoreline. All these regiments fought in the Battle of Brooklyn. Nearby, the archeology span of City Hall Park tells the story of 200 plus years of institutions, municipalities, politics, and people. This triangular parcel of land once known as the Common was used for public purposes since the founding of New Amsterdam and archeological investigations have found artifacts and building remnants associated with the city's first almshouse, the jail, the bridewell, the British barracks, and the early years of city hall itself. The common lay well outside the formal city limits and became a place for public protests and executions in the late 17th century. Its remote location also made it an ideal place for the city to construct its first poorhouse to house those you didn't want in your neighborhood, essentially. Built in 1735, the almshouse location on the common enabled the isolation 
of the diseased and the poor from the general population, making their control significantly easier. New York City's two 18th century prisons occupied opposite ends of the common flanking the poorhouse. The jail built in 1759 in response to the city's crime problem and the Bridewell constructed in 1775. Finding the Bridewell's foundation in 2011 was the first time that one of this common's 18th century structures had positively been identified. And that was, you know, almost like a kid on Christmas because you were just like, oh my God, we really found it. It really was where we thought it would be. During the revolution, both the jail and Bridewell were used to house American prisoners of war. Thousands of Americans taken prisoner during the war found themselves confined in their own prisons, as well as prison ships in churches and sugar houses. The prisons were severely overcrowded, treatment of the Americans incredibly harsh. The British provost marshal stationed at the common starved more than 2000 prisoners by stopping their rations, which he in turn sold. He allegedly admitted just before his death in 1791 that there were also 275 Americans and obnoxious persons executed. The unfortunate were conducted, gagged just behind the barracks and hung there without ceremony and they're buried. Yet despite extensive excavation in the area, such a mass grave has yet to be found or may never be found. The military barracks on the common housed several thousand. Each building was approximately 200 to 300 feet long. And despite their brief occupancy, the barracks, barracks residents left an archeological footprint in the form of their trash. Archeologists love garbage, at least garbage from the past. A large trash deposit was found in the Northwest corner of the common within among the almshouse burials and burial ground. Filled over time, it contained over 22,000 artifacts, many associated with British soldiers. An analysis identified 1762 to 1765 as the terminus post quem, which is the earliest date possible for the deposit to have occurred. 73% of the materials are food related, 25% are alcohol related. Among the bottles, are wine bottles, rum bottles, and whiskey bottles. And the sheer number of liquor bottles alone is possible evidence of rum rations for the British soldiers. The seal um, seen in the picture of a nearly complete bottle reads, Evert Bivank Inn, 1770, last digit is missing. And Bivank was a wealthy merchant who by all accounts fled the city uh, during the Battle of Long Island. It, he noted upon his return to the city during the early days of the conflict that British troops were upon his country house near Corlear's Hook. British troops were known to have regularly plundered local households, and it's perhaps the reason why that bottle ended up in City Hall Park. Other artifacts associated with the British soldiers are belted shoe buckles and this bayonet, which is currently on exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York. Surprisingly, there have been very few military-related objects um, found in City Hall Park, perhaps adding to the notion that the soldiers in New York City, according to some historians, um, were nothing but a glorified police force. But questions remain as to who precisely were occupying the barracks. Officers, enlisted men, Hessian mercenaries, artifacts such as wine glasses and fine china suggest a population with some semblance of funds. 
possibly low-ranking officers. But this near-complete chintz-painted creamware teapot is very rare on archaeological sites, and it was likely the property of an officer. Whomever the barracks residents were, they were at a minimum consumers within the local economy. And there's something to be said about housing the soldiers along with the prisoners and the poor. Maybe as a statement, keep them as far away from the general population as possible. I mean, after all, New York City is a place long known for its strong political opinions, its diversity. New York City is many things, international, iconic, has a reputation, its own political mindset. And it's somewhat unique in that it has had three distinct national identities, Dutch, British, and American. Though many of us, let's face it, most of us will just say we're New Yorkers. <laughs> Past and present, New Yorkers have rarely been shy to advertise their allegiances in various forms. And visual representations of the various national identities can be found across the city. Today, we might call it akin to branding. Merchandising is everywhere when you think about it. The colors and imagery of our affiliations, our likes and dislikes are readily familiar. Who here hasn't purchased some memorabilia or commemorative item? Don the colors of their favorite sports team. Um, it's how we signal our beliefs and our interests, uh, our personal identity or get a message across how we express our national heritage. Every 4th of July, stars and stripes and red, white, and blue show up on a range of items across the country. And while the proliferation of media has certainly increased, patriotic or political affiliations have been finding their way onto popular merchandise for centuries. The advertisement of sociopolitical beliefs and national heritage and other allegiances from the past have been found in archeological contexts throughout this city. Examples representing all three of New York City's national identities have been found. National identity number one, Dutch. Though Dutch tenure was relatively short, numerous histories and studies discuss how it was contributed, how it has contributed to our overall identity as a city. Even after British takeover, Dutch culture remained vibrant in the city. The South Street Seaport had several residents of Dutch descent, among them the Van Cortlands, a prominent merchant family who were heavily involved in local politics. During the revolution, the Van Cortlands secured the city's documents in their family burial vault in the Bronx, in today's Van Cortland Park. You can bear, uh, visit the burial vault. Within the boundaries of the Van Cortlands former property on Fulton Street, a stoneware shirt partially depicting the arms of Amsterdam. The arms of Amsterdam was recovered in the vicinity of an 18th century well. The British took control of New Amsterdam in 1664, establishing national identity number two. Pottery and other objects depicting imagery associated with the British Empire and monarchy have been found readily throughout former colonies and New York City. From the seaport area, this stoneware chamber pot bears the seal of King George. Because after all, who wouldn't want to think of the king while they were answering the call of nature? <laughs> the British barracks, though my favorite chamber pot is one with Prince George in the bottom and it says, don't dump on me. <laughs> find the picture. The British barracks housed soldiers on the common from 1776 to 1783. So perhaps it's not surprising to find a stoneware mug bearing the initials GR. This mug is fairly common and has been found in multiple contexts 
all throughout the, colon the former colonies, including properties associated with George Washington. Surely many toasts were made during the revolutionary period as New Yorkers were sure to show their king, their support for the king toasting to his health. Following the defeat of the British, there was much fanfare, pomp and circumstance surrounding the departure of the occupying forces. Though not found archeologically, this salt glazed stoneware jug made by Clarkson Crolius, whose shop was near the common, depicts a scene from evacuation day. Some of you will be familiar with the scene. It depicts a flagpole with partially raised British flag and a man on the pole with a bucket. Following the revolution, New York City became the new nation's first capital. President George Washington resided on Cherry Street, not far from either City Hall Park or South Street Seaport. And while the British may have lost the political battle, the British economy benefited as imports from Great Britain to the new United States increased triple fold during the post-revolutionary war era. The former colonies devastated from the war found themselves in the position of having always been a supplier of raw materials. The infrastructure for the large scale production of many goods just simply didn't exist. The pottery industry seized an opportunity to provide the new nation with patriotic wares. After more than a century of donning either a Dutch or British identity, the United States was looking to unbecome British and establish a new American identity and all that goes with it. Imagery, iconography, and a new American mythos. And one of my favorite flags, the Talmadge flag. Trash deposits from the South Street Seaport that date shortly after the 1783 withdrawal of the British forces from New York City contained many such items. Several Seaport area residents have been identified as patriots and revolutionaries. Garrett Van Wagenen, a soldier who was held prisoner by the British for two years. Isaac Sears, leader of the Sons of Liberty. His father-in-law, Jasper Drake, ran a tavern that was a popular meeting spot for the Sons. How might the objects these people and their families used represent their new American identity? British potters were rapidly producing wares tailored for the American market. Popular export wares were decorated in styles intended to appeal to American consumers by incorporating icons like the bald eagle and popular revolutionary war figures such as Washington and Lafayette. This Liverpool creamware mug found in City Hall Park where many evacuation day celebrations occurred depicts a young George Washington on horseback. A more complete version shows the text. His Excellency, Excellency General George Washington, Marshal of France and Commander-in-Chief of all the North American Continental Forces. Motivated by profit, not politics, the market was encouraging consumers to express nationalism through material purchases. Examples of patriotic pottery have been found within many seaport assemblages. This Castleford-type teapot displaying the early American symbols of liberty and the eagle and shield dates to 1800. The symbols are the central medallions on opposite sides of the teapot. Only a small portion of the eagle and shield may be visible, but based on other similar teapots, more complete versions, the eagle and shield are nearly identical to those of the great seal. These are among the earliest American symbols. The goddess liberty was widely utilized in late 18th century America. She was based on the Roman goddess Libertas, 
who symbolize personal freedom and electoral participation, as well as the rule of law and independence from despotic government. Libertas was used before the revolution and was familiar in colonial American culture. Paul Revere used Libertas in his designs for an obelisk that would be placed on the Boston Common to commemorate the end of the Stamp Act. It was after the Revolutionary War, however, that Libertas came to represent America more specifically. Libertas and a variation known as Columbia appeared on stamps, coins, textiles, paintings, sculptures, architecture, and in print media. An eagle and shield were chosen to represent the United States on the Great Seal in 1782. The colors and symbols of the seal reflected the beliefs and values of the founding fathers regarding their new country. This creamware plate, absolutely one of my favorite artifacts I've ever found, um, was made by Herculean pottery in Liverpool, England circa 1800. It displays several decorations that highlight the new American identity and its iconography. The plate is commemorative to the death of George Washington, who died December 14, 1799, America's first hero or first superhero. As president of the United States, Washington briefly lived near the seaport area. Columbia, the allegorical figure of America, is the central figure walking along the shore holding a laurel branch and carrying a shield that bears the familiar stars and stripes, with 16 stars to represent the 16 states at that time. In the foreground, the American eagle with the shield, also depicting 16 stars, and the banner reading E Pluribus Unum. In the background, a pyramid-like structure with an image of Washington and inscribed, sacred to the memory of Washington. The reference to Washington on the plate evokes his name and memory as sacred. Washington had become part of the apotheosis of the founding fathers, creating a narrative of the country's founding on which to base national unity. This is a very, very brief glimpse at some of the cultural information that can come from two archeological sites. The Revolutionary War continued for seven years. It truly came to an end for New York City on November 25th, 1783, when the last of the British troops left the city. That day, Washington made a triumphant return to the city as the last British flag was removed. The last British flag had been nailed to a flagpole at Fort George on the battery at the southern tip of Manhattan. The British greased the pole as a final act of defiance. After a number of men attempted to tear down the British colors, Wooden cleats were cut and nailed to the pole, and with the help of a ladder, Army veteran James John Van Arsdale was able to ascend the pole, remove the flag, and replace it with the stars and stripes before the British fleet had completely sailed out of sight. Archaeology challenges us to consider and reconsider our history. Only certain people make it into our history books, but archaeology enables us to tell the story of everybody. And history, again, happens on a physical and cultural landscape. And personal opinion, in order to truly have a sustainable future, we must have a well-understood past. And there is so much history that lies beneath our feet and within and among our city streets. Um, I do have other artifact slides of another favorite artifact, but we can go to questions because we are getting closer to uh, 
the clock. How, how long do you have with the other slides? I think people maybe think, three or four minutes. Yeah, why don't we do it? Sure. Okay. Another great artifact for personal identity are smoking pipes from City Hall Park. There are pipes with an Aboriginal figure. The figure is wearing a headdress, possibly a skirt, holding a spear in one of his outstretched arms. And facing the smoker is a shield, probably a coat of arms surmounted by flames. Research has suggested, um, and research by many, I don't do this solely by myself, I have a whole team. Um, research has suggested that this figure may represent King Tammany a legendary personage from early American folklore. When most modern New Yorkers hear the name Tammany, you most likely recall the powerful and corrupt political machine that controlled city politics. You know, the people who, if they had spent as actually bought as many brooms as they said they bought for the construction of Tweed Courthouse, you could have encircled the entire earth. <laughs> but those were not the ideals of the original sons of King Tammany. Um, and they were not the same as the original Tammany Hall. The legend of Tammany dates back to 1732 when Philadelphia's Skykill Fishing Company claimed their fishing rights had been given to them by the Delaware chief, who was a friend of William Penn. In Pennsylvania folklore, Tammany became a kind and virtuous American leader who helped European settlers. As political tensions grew in the mid 18th century, Images of Native Americans often identified as Tammany were used by European Americans as symbols of resistance to British authority. Some historians suggest that European Americans, especially those who had been born here in North America, consciously sought to establish a separate identity using Native American symbols in an attempt to create their own new American identity. Tammany was a powerful symbol leading up to the revolution. The Sons of King Tammany was organized in Philadelphia in the early 1770s to, in part, unite patriotic men of all ethnic origins under a benign American Indian influence. Quote, in 1773, they held a ceremony canonizing Tammany and as a saint changed their name to the Sons of St. Tammany. The Sons of Liberty also adopted St. Tammany as their patron saint. In the early years of the Republic, the Tammany Society promoted the celebration of Independence Day and Evacuation Day, both of which were celebrated with military drills, a parade, an official dinner, multiple toasts, fireworks displayed, all paid for by the city of New York. The Tammanys were also instrumental in recovering the remains of those who perished on the New Jersey, the prison ship. Um, and many will know the history where they set the ship on fire as they were leaving and prisoners were left to die. Um, the uh, Tammany Society went and collected the remains of the prisoners many years later um, and donated a plot of, one of their members donated a plot of land which would become their first burial ground. These were America's first POWs. The Aboriginal figure on the pipe bowl could be seen as a representative of the early days of defining American identity. Today, our heroes, um, the early United States are the founding fathers, especially Washington. We have an exhibit, America's first superhero in the room next door. 
But before our founding fathers became entrenched as symbols of American identity, other symbols were necessary to embody early American ideals. Um, and Tammany, along with Liberty, may have helped to have filled this role. One more piece of the stories that archaeology has to tell and what has occurred throughout our great city. Thank you. And I did promise to show you terrific. Thank you so much. And I think we do have time for a few questions. So uh, open it up for questions. Yes. And I did promise some that I would bring one of the uh, British Revolutionary War swords from the Whitehall Bennett Mons House, which is in Brooklyn, still standing, but Unfortunately, probably not for much longer. This was one of several that had been left in the house, including the pane, the window panes that were etched by the Hessian soldiers, uh, etc. Yes. Could you tell us what's going on with the house that you mentioned that might not be anything? The house was privately owned for many years. Um, one. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> sorry. Uh, the house. The house was uh, the White Cloth Bennett House. Um, which is still privately owned. It is an, um, a city-state national landmark. The, uh, it had the best caretakers. The Mont family purchased it in 1983, um, but upon their passing, uh, their children who were living elsewhere uh, could not maintain the house um, and were not in a position to move into the house. Uh, for many years, they were looking for a buyer who would truly care about the history um, the house was literally a museum to walk in when um, the original family sold the house. They sold it with all of its original contents, documents dating back to the 16 and 1700s, maps, pottery, furniture, swords, uh, rifles, uh, the list goes on. Um, the new owners who purchased the house uh, apparently did so under false pretenses and they have been letting the house rapidly fall apart. It has been broken into by homeless people um, and there's been a lot of damage to the house and it is now reportedly up for sale again. What happened to all the documents? Um, a, a neighboring local historic house, the Hendrick I. Lot House, who was also in the slideshow, the families were directly related um, the lot house is owned by the city of New York and the Friends of the Lot House works with the city to manage and maintain or develop programming for it. Um, the organization of which I am vice president, we worked closely with the family um, at the request of um, the, or one of the owners who had passed um, and we have acquired the majority of the historical um, items and documents, the panes of glass, some of the swords, a lot of the documents, photographs, um, a large portion of the collection now resides with the Hendrick I. Lot House. Um, and the families were directly related. Um, one of the granddaughters married one of the lots. Um, so there is a direct relationship as well as being nearby neighbors. Yes. Um, we, we saw that you, uh, not, I mean, not only did you talk a lot about the Battle of Brooklyn, and um, you, know, you also do tours of uh, Battle of Long Island, Battle of Brooklyn, different smaller than it is now. <laughs> um, but because um, a lot happened published in the town. 
But um, specifically, uh, we were just wondering also because it's Talmadge Day and you've done so much research on it. Have you ever actually looked at the Talmadge Orderly Book from 70, 1776 that they have here? I have not. Okay. Yeah. We were just wondering because it's like. But I will put that on my list. Yeah. No, it's like we haven't been able to do it. Uh, I was wondering if you give a quick background on the excavation like for Commission Day and which one in, in City Hall Park. Okay, so City Hall Park, um, during the Bloomberg administration, they um, undertook significant uh, infrastructural upgrades to City Hall, a lot of interior work as well. The work was undertaken by the Department of Design and Construction. Um, and it is part of the um, African Burial Ground uh, Historic District, um, that whole area and historic common historic district. Um, so they knew that there was going to be um, significant archaeological materials there. Um, there had been an earlier uh, excavation done in the 90s when the Parks Department did some landscaping. Uh, Brooklyn College had done an archaeological field school in the 80s, I believe it may have been. Um, so th there was a recovery has included um, the burials from the almshouse burial grounds and just well over a hundred thousand artifacts um, and building foundations. We, I've essentially, my dissertation focused on recreating the historic landscape of City Hall Park in different phases. Yes. Uh, we have a couple of Q&As from online. Sure. And if anybody else uh, is, uh, have any questions online, please uh, feel free to submit them via the Q&A function. Uh, you talked about the Wyckoff Bennett House. Um, uh, despite the fact that it's a New York City landmark, these things happen when private individuals purchase them. Um, second question: uh, What is a bridewell? Bridewell. Um, the bridewell was a prison. It was named the bridewell for the prison in London. So it was simply the name, and jail is spelled G-A-O-L <laughs> in the British. Where exactly was it's the provost, right? The jail was also moved at the provost. The jail was the provost house. So after they were um, no longer used as prisons, so after the revolution in the early 1800s, they have a plan of constructing a new city hall, and they um, chose the common. And you know the architect uh, Macomb goes to great lengths, agonizing that they will not let him use the stone he wants for the rear foundation because the justification was the city is never going to expand beyond this point. <laughs> but when City Hall was in the process of going to be built and they were starting to no longer use those jails, they were moving them further uptown to the tombs and into Greenwich Village area. Um, they started using different, they had different uses for the buildings. There was a museum, there was the provost. And Do you know what the footprint is though compared to City Hall, is it north of it? Oh, the jail? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, this I do know because this was my dissertation. Oh. <laughs> the the house built in 1735 was literally built on top of the first house. And when they were doing work in the basement, we found remains, uh, materials associated with the house. And the other two were literally on either side. So if you're familiar with where City Hall is, and if you were on the side of the Brooklyn Bridge, right next to City Hall, there's a big grassy area. The jail would have been in that grassy area, and the bridewell was on the other one, but a little bit offset. 
Yes. Able to pinpoint uh, this hill that was depending the same with where I was going to turn because uh, our tablets and monuments uh, really want to commemorate the 50th anniversary of that say, which preceded the Boston Masters, sort of New York's you know, Boston Masters. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the problem in history is that nobody died. Everybody's just got washed, <laughs> you know, um, pretty quickly. And McDougal was jailed as a result and he became a hero. But we don't know where we would put that monument that would say near this site occurred, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Well, the remnants that exist where you can actually see there's there was a hill because it's been leveled, it's been cut off, like many of lower Manhattan, like New York City's hills or Manhattan's hills. Um, there is a parking lot there and it cuts through the street right now. Um, Near Fulton and Pearl? So if you are on full, um, if you go between Fulton and Cliff and you're walking down Pearl Street, so start at Fulton and walk south toward Cliff. And if you look toward your right, there is a parking lot. You can't miss it. It literally goes through to the other block. And there you'll see where it makes a rise and it's flattened. And that is where Battle uh, Golden Hill was um, and the vicinity of the battle. Um, also, historic maps are fabulous. Uh, you have to give credit to the British military maps. They are so incredibly detailed. Um, they are great for geo-referencing. Um, but yeah, you can absolutely work with, um, you know, local building owners, um, or perhaps e even the city has its own marker system for historical markers that they're interested in putting together. So we're basically at eight o'clock. Is there one final question? If not, uh, I think we'll close down the questions. And I'd like to thank you so much. This was a so we have a certificate of appreciation. Uh, so it's a token of our appreciation for the uh, talk this evening. And then I'd like to uh, ask Father Cullen to come up for the benediction. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let us pray. In thy 91st Psalm, O God, we are told that he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty and shall not be afraid for the terror by night nor the arrow that flieth by day. Grant that we and this Republic may always dwell in the secret place of thee, the Most High, and under thy shadow. Grant us here gathered and all the citizens of this great Republic thy protection and benediction now and forever. Amen. So thank you all for coming. Uh, this concludes the program. Uh, for those of you who are joining us for dinner, uh, please go downstairs to the Bissell Room. It's in the back of the restaurant. 
Uh, we have uh, tables uh, reserved in that area. So um, please, uh, we can go down as soon as possible. That would be great. Thank you so much.